with you. It is good to see so many faces here. And uh, for those of you live streaming at home, uh, I want you to know that you are missed. You are definitely missed. Uh, if you are live streaming and you are not a member of our church, I pray that you would. Uh, well, first, let me introduce myself to you. I'm John Huff. I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Life. And we would love the opportunity to get to know you, get to meet you. So you can go to our website, covenantlifetampa.org. And uh, we even have an introduce yourself card on there. If you reach out to us, uh, we would love the privilege of communicating with you, maybe coordinated time if you would like to come in and be a part of our service. But for our church family uh, who is separated and at home and uh, even some over in the East Hall, I just wanted you to know that absence has indeed made this heart grow fonder. Uh, and I speak for all of our pastors that uh, we long for the day when our entire church family can all be back together again. We are a family. We've been forced to distance ourselves for months, and uh, it's been tough for everyone, and it ought to be tough. Uh, if it hasn't been tough, that's not good. Uh, in a sense, this is kind of like a family on deployment, right? And we're just uh, longing to be back together again. And that is because there's a special bond that unites us, and it's greater than any other bond that unites people in any other group. We are united to one another in Christ, now, our identity is now based first and foremost on who we are together in him. By faith in Christ, we are now children of God and brothers and sisters with one another. I think of the words uh, of Jesus when he's speaking to uh, his followers and somebody says, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are outside calling for you. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? All right, so he wasn't diminishing the importance of that family relationship, but he was saying, let me underline for you the beauty of this family relationship. Those that do the will of my father are my mother and brothers. We are one body, diverse in age, diverse in ethnicities, diverse in perspectives, diverse in backgrounds, diverse in life stage, diverse economically, diverse politically, diverse in opinion, diverse in preference, diverse in so many ways, yet drawn together as one body made part of one family that is united together by the blood of our crucified and risen Savior. I pray your love for this body grows day by day and week by week and year by year. I do. I pray while we are far from a perfect church, by God's grace, we will learn to grow together, care well for one another, disciple one another, and with love and humility and grace and patience, pursue Christ together. The giver of all good gifts has given us this church as one of his gifts. It started with a small group in a living room. And little by little, by the sovereignty of God, he has built this church. Every member of CLC has a, has a different story. And I love to hear your stories about how God brought you to be a part of this body. Each story is a little bit different. Each story has some twists and turns. Some were expecting to go in a different direction, but God had other plans. And so the common denominator for all of our stories is that there was one working behind the scenes, bringing all things together according to his plan and his sovereign will. Let me make very clear my goal this morning. It is that we would boast in the sovereignty of God in all things. That we would boast in the sovereignty of God in all things. There are other things that we will see in his word this morning, but this is the big idea. Just as God sovereignly led each one of us to become a part of this church that we love so dearly, he is sovereignly working out all things for our good and for his glory. 
I pray that we would not only see God's sovereignty, but that we would embrace it, that we would submit to it and boast in this great truth that our God is sovereign in all things. James has been such a practical book. We knew from the beginning that it would be. James has a lot to say about what we say. And we've seen this as we've gone through the first four chapters. We think back to chapter one. Let no one say when he is tempted. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. In chapter two, James condemns the partiality that would speak favorably to a rich man saying, you sit here in a good place while speak condescendingly to a poor man saying, you sit here at my feet. Impartiality that would treat some favorably and others poorly because of their wealth or because of the lack of wealth or because of the color of their skin is a sin against God and a sin against the one that is made in God's image. This partiality is an evil that lurks in the recesses of even regenerated hearts like yours and mine. And I pray that we would ask God to help us see it and confess it and to repent from it. In chapter three, the focus of the tongue is seen very clearly. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. No human being can tame the tongue. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And then we saw last week in chapter four, Justin preached, do not speak evil against one another. So that brings us where we are today. The end of chapter four, verses 13 through 17. I'm gonna read them one more time. Who is wise and understanding among you? Sorry, that is actually chapter three, verse 13. Let me go to 4.13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James does indeed have a lot to say about what we say, but to be clear, our striving here is not just to avoid sinning with our words, as great as that would be. It is possible to a great degree to clean the outside of the cup, to be a, a whitewashed tomb, to outwardly appear righteous to others with our words, but within to be full of hypocrisy and sin. And knowing that it is out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths speak, let us go to God in prayer and ask him this morning by his Holy Spirit and through his word to do that work on our hearts that we so desperately need. Father, thank you for your word that is so practical and the study through the book of James that week after week has hit home in so many ways and on so many points. Your word is truth. In a world of conflicting messages, we look to you and your word for truth. In a world of turmoil, we look to you, our rock of ages. God, we are weary. We are in desperate need for the rest that only you provide. Remind us again of how you are sovereign over all things and that you are in complete control. 
may we boast in you and in your sovereignty. God, I think of those that are watching at home and we've all been there one week or the other and the temptations to be distracted, maybe young kids getting restless. God, I pray that we would be able to, for those of us gathered here and even the distractions of thoughts running through our minds would be set aside. And for the distractions of those that are at home with maybe young kids calling out in need, I pray that those distractions as much as possible would be diminished, that our focus would be on you and on your word and that you would strengthen us by it this morning. Help us to honor you, not only with the words that we speak, but with our hearts that are set on you and on your truth. And may that just overflow and be evidenced in the words that we speak. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. If you're a note taker, I've got three notes or three points for you three truths that we are going to see in this passage. First of all, in verses 13 and 14, that presumption is arrogant foolishness. Presumption is arrogant foolishness. Verses 15 and 16, we will see that God is sovereign in all things. And then in verse 17, that to hear the word but not do it is sin. So the first one, presumption is arrogant foolishness. Back in verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, if you were to stop right there and this was the first time you had ever read this passage, would you have been alerted to any problems? You may see that and say, I don't get it. Is it wrong to plan? Is it wrong to seek a profit? What were they doing? They just said, we're gonna go here. We're gonna do that. We're gonna try and make some money. No, of course not. Their problem wasn't in their planning or in their profits. It was in their pride. In all of their plans and in all of their desire for profit, they foolishly left God completely out of the picture. They may have sung hymns on Sunday, but on Monday, it was atheism in practice. And the problem here is not simply a matter of words. It is a self-centered heart. It is pride manifested in boastful self-reliance that says, I'm going to do this and I'm gonna do that without any acknowledgement that there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns over every detail of our lives. There are several places that you can see the teaching of Jesus mirrored in the teaching of James. And this is one of them. Jesus told a parable of a rich fool that sounds a lot like these merchants. We'll look at that in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, Luke 12, 16 to 21. Listen to this parable that you're familiar with. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, the problem for the rich fool in Jesus' parable was not that he was rich, it was that he was a fool. And his foolishness shows itself both in his covetousness that always wanted more and his presumption that planned his comfortable future 
without viewing his life through the lens of God in eternity. And we're prone to do the same thing, to view our future through what we can accomplish, not through the lens of God who's in control of all things and through the brevity of our life as we think about eternity. What would it have looked like for this rich man to have had his mindset on God and the fast approaching threshold of eternity? I'll tell you what it would have happened. He would have been right here, verse 21, rich toward God. He would have recognized that it was, God, it was due to God's sovereignty that provided him with more than what he needed for the day and allowed him to even think about setting aside for tomorrow out of his abundance. If he was viewing life through the lens of God in eternity, he wouldn't be building bigger barns. He would be writing bigger checks. The mindset on self and the presumption about tomorrow hoards. The mindset on God and on the brevity of life leads to greater and greater generosity. For you, maybe the problem isn't acknowledging the Lord and your planning for the future, but maybe it's presuming upon his grace. How do you know if you're presuming upon his grace? Well, let me ask you, what happens when suffering comes into your life? What happens when there's a job loss or diminishment in income? or a bad news about your health, or your comfort in some way is disrupted? Do we complain? Do we think God owes us these things? Do we presume upon his grace? Or do we say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In their pride, these merchants and James boast of what will happen next year, when in reality, they don't even have control over what will happen the next day. How fitting for us to study this passage at such a bizarre time in each of our lives, when so many plans that we have all made have literally been, whew, right, thrown out the window. Each of us has a story all about how our lives got flipped, turned upside down. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19, 21. Think about the plans that you had, right? I can think back to when this was all unraveling. When I say all, I'm talking about the disruption of plans. We were planning in, in May to go to Disney for a couple of days and then travel up to Jacksonville to a nephew's college graduation where family was gonna come in from Boston and Montana and Arkansas. And we were just gonna have a great family get together after our two days at Disney. And Heidi and I were talking and there's just this, the rumors of businesses closing and events being canceled and the uncertainty of what's gonna happen and how long things are gonna last. And, and Heidi said, well, maybe they're gonna close down Disney. And in my presumption, I said, listen, honey, three things you can be sure of, death, taxes, and Disney doesn't close, all right? A category five hurricane can be barreling down on Orlando and the worst case scenario is they cancel the Main Street Parade, right? That's as bad as it gets. And I'm thinking, this is early March. We're talking about May. What are you talking about? Not go to Disney. We didn't go to Disney. There was no college graduation. There was no family get together. Many of us were excited and have been for the last two years about T4G together for the gospel. Tickets are purchased, hotel reservations are booked. We're salivating over all the books that we're gonna get to buy. 
all the people we're gonna get to see, all the sermons that we get to hear preached in person, there was no T4G. I think of young couples, even in our church, with their wedding plans, right? And, and even the, the specifically the bride, because the husband, I mean, two people, 200 people, whatever, right? Just we're married, we're off. But the bride who's been looking forward to this day, planning it most likely for years and maybe even a decade or more, those plans are set aside. And we have all become more freshly aware of how unpredictable all, all of our lives really are. We're not only unable to know what will happen tomorrow, we don't even know if we'll be here tomorrow to see it. What is our life, James says? It's a mist, a vapor. It's here for a moment and then gone. Now, I grew up in the Tampa Bay area and uh, not accustomed to cold weather. Didn't like cold weather. Growing up poor, uh, for most of my childhood, I didn't even own a jacket. You know, if it's cold outside, you just put on two t-shirts. But one cool thing every kid will enjoy, especially those that are down here in Tampa, is when it's cold enough outside that you can see your warm breath in the cool air, right? And you go, ah, and you're like, whoa, look. And then it's gone, ah, you keep doing it because it's fascinating. Or it was fascinating for me. I don't know if it was for you, but. And that's, James says, your life is like that breath that you can see for a moment and then it's gone. We joke around with one another about getting old, but it's true. And it happens very fast. It happens very fast. I joke around about J-pop picking up Harper and throwing out his back. And then I pick up Eli and my back tightens up, right? All of our lives are short and many times they are shorter than we ever expected. The first big news event to hit us in 2020 I think you could say this would be the passing of one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And I remember Sunday in January after the gathering, we're home, just kind of relaxing. I look at ESPN.com and I see Kobe Bryant, 1978 to 2020. And my jaw drops. Maybe you don't know who Kobe Bryant is, and, but he was just this icon of a basketball player, this phenomenon 20 years, you watch him play for the Lakers. And then like that, you just get the news he's gone and the world had a hard time wrapping their minds around it. He died in a helicopter crash. So we can comfort ourselves. Well, I don't get transportation by helicopter, right? So, wow, that's terrible what happened to him and how his life seemed to be cut short. But that's unlikely to happen to me because I don't go on helicopter rides. Well, there was another death that took place in January, a little bit closer to home. It made the news too, but not because it was a celebrity. If I mention the guy's name, you won't know who it is. I don't think. Do you know who George Gage is? Probably not. He, he died right here in South Tampa. And, and his death made the news, not because he was famous, but because of how unexpected and unusual it was. You know what dangerous thing he was doing at that time that he died? Same thing that a lot of us in here have done jogging on the sidewalk of Bayshore. He was jogging on the sidewalk, not on the road, not crossing the road. He was jogging on the sidewalk of Bayshore and a impaired driver in a pinch of penny truck going northbound goes over the curb, over the grass, through the sidewalk, hitting that cement railing, throwing him into the bay 
in killing him. He went out for a jog on Bayshore and never came home. Our lives are short. Our lives are all short. Each night that you pillow your head, stop and realize that day as another gift from our generous God and do not presume upon his generosity for tomorrow. It is foolish to presume upon tomorrow and it's foolish to presume upon God's grace and mercy. Our lives are so short and eternity is so long. Don't be lulled to sleep thinking that this ride never ends. It does. And each day we're all taking one step closer to that moment when we will stand before our maker and judge. And our only hope for that day is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own from any works that we can do, but standing in his righteousness that we receive by faith in Christ. Faith in what Christ did as our perfect sacrifice, who lived a sinless life and died on the cross, absorbing the wrath that we deserved and who was then resurrected to new life, showing his power over sin and death. I beg you, turn from your sin, your sin of presumption, your sin of living for yourself and turn to Christ in faith. Don't put it off. Don't be foolish. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Presumption is arrogant foolishness. And I want you to see secondly, in verses 15 and 16, that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So James urges these presumptuous merchants to add a qualifier to their planning. If the Lord wills, Deo volunti. It, this is modeled by the Apostle Paul. He said to the Ephesians in Acts 18, 21, before he set sail, I will return to you if God wills. He said to the Corinthians, two occasions, chapter four, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And then in chapter 16, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So do we, all have, do we always have to say Lord willing? Do we have to like tag that on to the end of everything? Right, Heidi's downstairs in the kitchen finishing up dinner and she says, honey, dinner's ready. All right, and I'm upstairs. Do I say, I'll be right there, Lord willing, right? No, 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 no. It's the heart behind these words that matters. Even when the words aren't said, it's understanding that our lives are under not our control, but ultimately under the control of our sovereign God. We are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our soul. Invictus may be great poetry, but it's terrible theology. And when I say theology, some of you will think of a, a class you took in school, or maybe a big book that sits on the shelf and doesn't get read, or, or maybe a CLI class that you opt not to attend, or maybe something that's just theoretical and distant from your day-to-day -day life. But church, nothing could be further from the truth. We desperately need sound theology, biblical theology, God-glorifying and paradigm-shifting theology. And the sovereignty of God is that. The sovereignty of God over all things is life-changing. So let's define God's sovereignty. God, as the creator of heaven and earth, has absolute right and full authority to do all that he desires 
and all things are under his control. Jerry Bridges, in his great book that I would highly recommend, Trusting God, says God is in control. He does whatever pleases him and determines whether we can do what we have planned. This is the essence of God's sovereignty, his absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all of his creatures. We're gonna look at several verses here. They're gonna be popping up on the screen. Job 42, two. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel said, chapter 435, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Isaiah, the Lord says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Oh, nobody can stop God from fulfilling his will. Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works, what? All things according to the counsel of his will. As J. Alec Motier says, even the small print of the Christian life is in the hands of our sovereign God. So God is sovereign. Does that matter? Yes, yes. Life often comes at us with wave after wave of difficulty and trial and suffering and chaos. And who among us has not felt that weight of the chaos of living in this broken world? And we're not even halfway through what is probably the most stressful year of most of our lives. And in these tumultuous times, a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God over all things is like the ballast in our little boat that keeps us from getting capsized. Rest in this truth. God is in control. We are in the hands of the one who is working all things together for our good and for his glory. All things? Yes, all things. The Bible teaches God's meticulous sovereignty or even over all things, even the seemingly random things. Proverbs 16, 33 the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So from the roll of the dice to the change in the heart of the king, it is God who is sovereignly in control of all and working all things according to his sovereign will. Boast in his sovereignty. Boast in his sovereignty in your salvation. You didn't come to faith in Christ because of something good in you. You didn't come to faith in Christ because of something good in you. It was all because of his sovereign grace leading you to faith and repentance. Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you never asked yourself the question, why did you believe? Why did you believe and that person didn't believe? Why does one twin in the same home, in the same situation, going to the same church, hearing the same stories, why does he follow Christ and the other one goes the way of the world? Why, why does that happen? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, give God the glory for your salvation. Boast in his sovereignty. He's the one that brought it about. And his sovereignty is not to be boasted about only in the big things, but in everything. 
James said, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord wills, we will do that. You don't have to add if the Lord wills to every sentence, but don't foolishly assume, presume upon what you will do tomorrow. Proverbs 27, one, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Boasting about the future shows both ignorance and arrogance. That's the kind of boasting that James says is evil. It's ignorant because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's arrogant to presume that we are in control of tomorrow. Boasting that puts us in the spotlight. Boasting that focuses on our abilities, our positions, our power, our wealth, our control, our achievements. Boasting that tells the world, look at me and what I can do. James says such boasting is evil. But is all boasting evil? That's generally the way we use the term. You generally don't hear somebody say boasting in a positive sense. Over the last couple of years, and really even the last couple of months, I've become more and more fatuated, curious with the sport of CrossFit. Maybe it's because I have chicken legs and spaghetti noodle arms, but those people are really fit, and that's impressive. They have a competition each year, the CrossFit Games, to determine the fittest man and the fittest woman. And there was a man, Rich Froning, who won it four years in a row before he retired from individual competitions. So could he have kept going? Who knows? But super impressive. You win fittest man one year, right? Like I'm gonna get that tattooed on my chest and just like walk around, what's up? I'm Rich Froning. Rich Froning does have a tattoo, not on his chest, but under his arm. Four years in a row he won fittest man. You know what the tattoo says? Be impressed if you do. It's a scripture verse. It's Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is a boasting that is good. It is not the boasting that we see of the presumptuous merchants in James 4, but it is a boasting of Christians in their God and the Lord crucified in God's sovereignty. So we see that presumption is arrogant foolishness. We see that God is sovereign over all things. And then lastly, to hear the word, but not do what it says is sin. The teaching about the sins of omission in this verse appears to be rather awkwardly added to the end of this paragraph, but it's really just a reiteration of what James already told us. He said earlier in chapter one, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He said, don't just look in the mirror and walk away. And we need this reminder often. We do. Holy lives are not just marked by the absence of what is evil, but by the presence of what is good. I've shared my conversion testimony with several before. The pendulum swung drastically, right? From somebody who, as a teenager, living without God in my mind, in my thoughts, acting independently with a conscience that was hardly bothered by any sin. And then it swung to this extreme where the sins of commission, I was out to get every one of them. So much so that I was calling things sins that weren't even sins. I'd tell you them, but you'll laugh at me, okay? I'll tell you later. Just terrible, 
right? Like I look back, I'm like, oh, you're so foolish. Well, you, you were condemning something that, that wasn't even wrong. But the sins of omission are the easy sins to, to go after. It's the sins of omission that are harder to see. And we have this tendency when we think of sin to think of our sins of commission and to overlook our sins of omission. R.C. Sproul is helpful here. He says that while sins of commission are often blatant and deliberate, sins of omission can be subtle and sneaky. So while I might never commit adultery, this is R.C. Sproul speaking, I'll never, I pray, okay. While I might never commit adultery, I could easily fail to love my wife as Christ loved the church. You see, the first would be an example of a sin of commission, the sin of adultery. The sin of omission in that example is failing to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So we need to go to God with all humility and ask him to search our hearts and show us where we need to repent of the sins of omission. The good that we should have done but didn't do. Ask God to use the light of his word to show you where you are failing to do the good that he has called you to do. Church, I pray that we would move cautiously and humbly when attempting to point out the sin of omission in others. Because too often what we will do is the very thing that James just told us not to do last week. We end up speaking evil against one another. We start laying down laws and judging others for not following them. And to that, James rebukes us with the truth that there is only one lawgiver and judge. Whoever knows the right thing to do reminds us that as our growth and the knowledge of the word of God increases, so does our responsibility to do what we have heard and learned. Once again, this teaching echoes the teaching of Jesus, that greater, with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. Matthew 11, 20 through 22. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them, Tyre and Sidon, than it will be for you. How is it that it would be more tolerable for one people, for one city on the day of judgment than it would be for another city? Because with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. Our Lord said, everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. We sit under faithful preaching of the word week in and week out. We hear scripture expounded verse by verse and book by book. We hear the word and we know the right thing to do, but yet there won't be any crowns in heaven given out for the best listener. Don't come to church, hear a sermon and walk home, leave the same way as you came. There is one lawgiver and judge. Are you ready to stand before him? Every sin you have ever committed, sins of commission, sins of omission, they will all be before his holy eyes. And what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. We deserve his wrath. We deserve the wages of sin. But God being rich in mercy has offered us forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Turn from your sin, I pray. Turn in faith to the Savior. Don't presume upon God's grace, church. Recognize that even your next breath 
is owing to the kindness of our merciful God upon whom our fragile lives are utterly dependent. Joyfully submit to the meticulous sovereignty of God in all things. And look in the mirror of God's word and where there are sins of omission, confess, repent, and walk in the light as he is in the light. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just taking a moment to reflect on the truths of God's word, I would ask that you pray silently, asking God to show you where there are sins of omission, where there is presumption, where we fail to boast in his sovereignty.